Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program and a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, also an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, we're going to discuss ROS1 fusions and no small cell lung cancer, including diagnosis, treatment, and new exciting research coming down the pipeline. Today, it's my pleasure to host two amazing physician investigators we experience in this subtype of lung cancer. First, I would like to introduce Dr. Lorenza Landi. She's the Director of Clinical Trials Unit, Phase 1 and Precision Medicine at the National Cancer Institute, Regina Elena, in Rome, Italy. Dr. Landi has extensive experience and is interested in target therapy in lung cancer. We have focused on ALK, HER2, EGFR, and ROS1-positive lung cancer. Welcome, Dr. Landy. Hi, and thanks uh, for introducing me. Thank you. We also have Dr. Sirich Gatgill. He's chief of the Division of Hematology and Oncology at Henry Ford Cancer Institute in Michigan. Dr. Gatgill. Thank you very much, Narjust. Uh, it's truly a pleasure to be on this podcast uh, with you and Lorenza. My pleasure. Uh, we are talking today about ROS1 rearrangements and lung cancer. As we are colleagues and we know each other, we're going to be referring each other by first name. So, Lorenza, as we talk about our ROS1 rearrangements and lung cancer, what is the history of ROS1 rearrangements in lung cancer, as we leave, we came to this by a little bit of a mistake. So, well, um, the history of ROS1 rearrangements in lung cancer began in 2007 when uh, Ricova identified two ROS1 fusion products in cell line and in tumor models. And these uh, proteins uh, immediately appeared as a potential uh, therapeutic target. So in very few, few words, uh, ROS1 rearrangement and code for fusion proteins uh, with uh, active uh, tyrosine kinase um, uh, domain, which stimulates cell growth and uh, uh, proliferation. ROS1 rearrangement occurring 1 to 2% of no small cell lung cancer, and uh, despite its low incidence, uh, current guidelines recommend to test for ROS1 uh, um, rearrangement uh, because of the immediate therapeutic uh, um, consequences. And um, it's important to remember that uh, ROS1 share a lot of homology with ALK uh, positive disease. Uh, however, it's, I underlined that uh, ALK ROS1 disease are two different clinical entities uh, with a different sens sensitivity to uh, targeted agents. Thank you. Sirish, is ROS1 present in normal tissue? If yes, where do we see it? 
So ROS1 uh, is many times considered an orphan gene because um, its function has not been well-defined and there is no sort of defined ligand to the extracellular domain. When you look at RNA levels, there are RNA levels seen in normal lung tissue and interestingly in normal epididymis. Uh, but protein level, uh, at the protein level, uh, ROS1 is not detected normally. Uh, so in normal lung, there can be very occasional, mild uh, ROS1 expression, uh, but it is so uncommon and, and it is so unlikely that uh, ROS1 expression uh, by detection, rather ROS1 protein detection by immunohistochemistry is one of the diagnostic tools to identify ROS1 translocations in non-small cell lung cancer in that uh, in tumors that have ROS1 translocation, the expression of ROS1 is higher than what is, it, what is found in normal tissues. Thank you for sharing that. That's very different compared to you know, other mutations that we have seen in normal thyroid tissue that we see some, somewhere else. And that brings you know, to my next question. Lorenza, how are ROS1 rearrangements different compared to others? And, you know, we have seen that the phenotypic and clinical presentation of these patients may be different compared to ALK-positive patients or patients with KRAS mutation. What makes ROS1 different from the mutation point of view and from the clinical presentation point of view? So, as I mentioned before, ROS1 rearrangement uh, define a particular list of group of non-small cell lung cancer patients. Uh, patients with ROS1 rearrangement share many features in common with ALK or RET uh, uh, positive patients, in example, such uh, uh, younger age at diagnosis, uh, I, I mean median age uh, in such patient is approximately 50 years, uh, they are never smoking uh, and with adenocarcinoma histology. However, compared to ALK disease, ROS1 uh, um, rearrangements are associated with lower rates of uh, extrathoracic metastasis. Indeed, in my experience, uh, I often see patients with uh, bulky mediastinal involved and highly aggressive and uh, symptomatic disease. And uh, finally, another point, uh, it's important to remember, uh, and this is a very relevant point from a clinical point of view, that ROS1 rearranged uh, uh, patients uh, are at high risk of venous thromboembolism compared to uh, other patients with advanced normal cell lung cancer or patient harboring either other oncogenic drivers such as the EGFR or KRAS mutation. Uh, we have a number of uh, reports uh, showing that uh, uh, deep venum, venum thrombosis or pulmonary embolism can occur uh, at different time point of the patient journey, uh, such as at diagnosis, at progression, or during treatment, even in those patients who responded to treatment. So, we have to pay attention to clinical presentation. That's so interesting. And Suresh, have you seen any clinical characteristics that are unique to these patients? I think the thromboembolism risk is something that is very unique. 
Absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, you know, Lorenza really uh, provided an overview of what the clinical presentation is. And, you know, it is these tend to be younger, uh, tend to um, have the same similar features as what we see in outpatients. But always important to remember, that doesn't mean you couldn't see an occasional patient who is older. I would like to highlight one more point, and, and this is not exactly a clinical feature, but a, a sort of a difference compared to ALK. And that is that in ROS rearrangements, there are many more partner genes that have been identified in that. With ALK also, there are many partner genes, but 85% of all ALK rearrangements in non-small cell lung cancer, the partner gene is EML4. Of course, there are other genes, whereas there's not such a dominance. Yes, CD74 is the more common gene, uh, but the percentage is not as high as 85%. And the reason I wanted to sort of mention that is that it is uh, very important that uh, the because of the, the type of testing we do to identify these ROS1 gene rearrangements. So when one does do NGS testing, because of the multiple partners, it is possible that the DNA-based testing may not identify all ROS arrangement, rearrangements. And if the DNA testing is negative, as is true for other uh, rearrangements, and I would say particularly for ROS1, it is important that RNA-based testing is done so that we identify all the patients who have these gene rearrangements. Um, so it's important to note that a little bit of a difference from ALK is that in ALK, there's a dominant partner in 85% of the tumors that doesn't exist in ROS1 uh, mm -hmm. patients' tumors. Suresh, that's a very good point. And I have a follow-up question. So sometimes RNA testing may be left as the last step, right? Or we run out of tissue or the RNA uh, testing is not adequate or there's some issues. Has been the ROS1 testing validated when it comes to liquid biopsies? How good are they? How often are they used? So... Absolutely, like with other alterations, uh, liquid biopsy is an important tool to complement tissue-based testing. As you mentioned, tissue-based testing may not, you know, there may not be enough tissue, uh, there may not be a sample uh, sufficient left for RNA-based testing. The problem is in general, in general with CT uh, DNA testing, gene rearrangements are not as well detected as the point mutations are. And so I do believe that it is very critical that though do we use ctDNA for detecting driver genetic alterations. It's important to note that if it is not detected, if a driver genetic alteration is not detected in blood ctDNA test, that we go back to doing another biopsy uh, of the tumor, ensuring that the procedure done obtains adequate tumor material to do appropriate NGS testing. And so as good as ctDNA is uh, re with regards to complementing tissue-based testing, it's important to note that the sensitivity is still about overall about 70%. And a negative ctDNA doesn't mean that the patient's tumor doesn't have a driver genetic alteration. So building on this question, right? about testing, are, is RNA testing being done by all these commercial platforms or that's something that the community oncologist needs to specifically request? Uh, most of the commercial NGS tests these days do do RNA-based testing. 
I think what is important that uh, when one gets a report, uh, there you know we not only pay attention to what was detected or not detected, but we also pay attention to the uh, sensitivity of the test. In that, uh, in certain samples, the tumor cellularity may not be adequate to do uh, both DNA and RNA-based testing. And so even if the lab has done DNA-based and RNA-based testing, the result may be negative because the sample that was provided did not have enough uh, cellularity. And that information sometimes is sort of buried in a, uh, you know, on the, uh, on sort of uh, the third or the fourth page of the report and, and may be missed by the, uh, by the clinician who is reviewing that report. And so uh, particularly if you see a patient who meets the clinical criteria, I think it should extend to all patients, but particularly in the never smoking young patient, uh, if you get a negative result in your tissue NGS testing, even if both DNA RNA-based testing are done, it is important that one reviews the entire report to identify were there any technical limitations that may have led to a negative result. And that, uh, and sometimes one needs to contact the lab to get clarity on that issue. Thank you. This is so helpful because sometimes we talk about RNA, but we don't, you know, breaking down the importance. Moving on, on the clinical characteristic of these patients, Lorenza, do we see ROS1 rearrangements more commonly in women versus men? Are these younger patients? Are these older patients? But in general, I see ROS1 rearrangement in both uh, female and male patients, uh, and uh, especially in younger patients, because uh, in the last year, I see mainly patients uh, with uh, 30, uh, 30, 40 years uh, as median age, uh, and uh, uh, equally in men and, uh, and women. So not particularly... Um, uh, incidents uh, according to according to genders. Uh, when I started uh, uh, study ROS1 positive disease, uh, I I was convinced that it was uh, uh, mainly frequent in a female patient, but probably uh, this not true. I would also like to just quickly add to what Lorenza uh, discussed is that it is, I think, important to note that both ALK and ROS1, there doesn't appear to be um, a higher in incidence in a particular um, uh, ethnic group. You know, with EGFR, there does appear to be a higher incidence mm. yes. uh, in Asian patients. Asian, yeah. But yeah. I, I didn't see any difference, but uh, it's true that my... Uh, that my clinic is oriented in uh, um, a patient from uh, uh, Europe, so Italian patient. No, no, uh, I, I don't see uh, many patients from for uh, from other countries. But in general, for us, one we didn't observe uh, uh, this difference uh, um, among different ethnicity. This is a very good point, and I'm gonna summarize it. So we see these patients have mediastinal disease, higher risk of thromboembolism, no difference by gender, they tend to be younger, and no difference by race or ethnicity. 
this is quite different compared to EGFR, compared to KRAS mutations. So I think this just helps yeah. us understand a little bit more. So as we define the mutation in the patient, Suresh, what are the current treatments that are approved for the treatment of ROS1 positive lung cancer? So right now we have two drugs that are FDA approved. The first drug was uh, uh, that was approved was crizotinib, you know, uh, crizotinib, that historic trial of profile 1001, the phase one trial of crizotinib. One of the cohorts was the ROS1 cohort in that uh, phase one trial. And uh, they enrolled about 53 patients uh, in that cohort. And they observed a median progression-free survival of uh, 19 months. And now those patients have been followed long enough that the median uh, overall survival is uh, over, over 50 months. The other drug that is approved is entrectinib. Um, the data on entrectinib is a collation from three different trials. And overall, the response rates are very similar to crizotinib, sort of in the high 60s, low 70% percentage. And the median progression-free survival is also very similar, 15 uh, to 19 months. We don't have enough follow-up to know the overall survival in the entrectinib-treated uh, patients. One of the features that differentiates the two drugs is that entrectinib appears to have uh, responses in CNS metastases. So the response rate in measurable CNS metastases was approximately 79%. Whereas with crizotinib, generally like with ALK, we have really not seen CNS response. And CNS is not an uncommon site of progression in patients who are on uh, crizotinib. So we have Two different drugs approved for ROS1 treatment-naive uh, patients. These two drugs have somewhat of a different, uh, slightly somewhat different uh, toxicity profile. I think Crizotinib's toxicity profile is well recognized with uh, visual disturbances, uh, with um, you know GI uh, toxicity edema. With entrectinib it does have TREK inhibition, and that's why there is that TRK in its name. And it, is a, it has shown activity in TREK-positive tumors or TREK-rearranged tumors, including non-small cell lung cancer. But these TREK inhibitors do have some specific adverse effects of weight gain, of dizziness, ataxia, uh, taste uh, changes, uh, as well as uh, edema. And so the tolerability of these two drugs could be different in individual uh, patients. And in that sense, it's good to have two different options to manage our patients. And this follows a very important question to the two of you. What is your preferred first light agent for ROS1 positive no small cell lung cancer and why? I'm going to start with Lorenza, and then Suresh, you can answer after. So thanks. As uh, Shiris uh, explained, uh, really we have uh, two valid options, so crizotinib and uh, entrectinib. But when I look at the results of the of the of the trials, uh, I consider this drug uh, very similar in the general population. So 
in a patient without any specific characteristics and uh, uh, results are similar in uh, terms of response rate, PFS, duration of response, and uh, also probability to be alive at, uh, at two years. But the difference between the two drugs is mainly related to the CNS properties of the, of the entrectinib. So in, uh, when I see a patient with brain metastasis, my uh, preferred choice uh, is, uh, is entrectinib uh, for sure. Um, I would agree with Lorenza and for the same, same reason, my preference is, uh, is um, entrectinib uh, for its CNS activity. Thank you. And following to that, Lorenza, are these treatments very well tolerated? What are some of the most challenging side effects where we're talking about ROS-directed therapy? So when I consider crizotinib and entrectinib, I consider these two agents as well tolerated with a small fraction, approximately 5% or less of patients uh, experiencing serious uh, grade three or four adverse event uh, leading to uh, permanent discontinuation. These two agents have a different safety profile. Here is explained the difference between the two, uh, the two drugs for crizotinib. Uh, uh, the most frequent adverse events are a neutrophile uh, count uh, alteration, transaminase elevations, uh, or uh, increase in the creatinine level, edema, and visual disorder. Some patients may, uh, may experience also QT prolongation. But in a rare case, and I wanna underline this point, we can observe the development of a larger renal mass, benign complex renal cyst. So the risk in such cases is not related to the cyst uh, per se, because uh, they are asymptomatic and uh, they resolve uh, spontaneously. But the risk uh, is in interpreting this uh, appearance of new lesion as a progressive disease. For, uh, for entrectinib, I think the most uh, uh, relevant side effects are related to the track inhibition property of the drug. So the picture of adverse event uh, includes a lab test abnormal, uh, abnormal anomaly, uh, such as, um, uh, I don't know, increase in transaminase uh, levels and a neurological effect, such uh, dysgeusia, dizziness, uh, paresthesia. But I, I, I think that irrespective of the drug, um, the adverse event occur in general within uh, the first months of treatment, uh, and we are used to manage this adverse event considering uh, temporary discontinuation first uh, and, do and uh, those uh, reduction uh, in uh, uh, and then. And uh, probably in the next future, considering the, uh, the, the, the picture of uh, new uh, ROS1 inhibitors, probably uh, the neurological adverse event uh, uh, will deserve a more specific consideration. Thank you so much. Um, I think, you know, adverse events have changed with the introduction of targeted therapy and every drug has the unique adverse events. It's no longer a blanket, you know, because with chemotherapy, we could 
you know, use a blanket for some of this. But as we move forward and discuss the disease, unfortunately, disease progression happens. So Sirish, after disease progression on crisotinib or entractinib, what is your preferred next line of therapy? And also, is there any role for lorlatinib here? Um, so, not just uh, actually, what I'm going to do, if it's okay, I'm going to briefly discuss a patient that I just, uh, um, you know, treated with lorlatinib after the patient had progression on entrectinib and sort of the way we approach this patient sort of gives an overview of how I like to approach a patient. So this patient had been on entrectinib for almost two and a half years. She had a diagnosis, uh, mediastinal lymph node disease, as well as bone mets. And she had a wonderful response to entrectinib, but uh, after um, uh, about two and a half years into treatment, she started developing progression in her mediastinal lymph nodes, as well as uh, right hilar lymph nodes. And so we staged her with PET scan, brain scan. Uh, there was no activity in the baseline bone metastases that were found. So the only active disease was in the mediastinum. And um, there was nothing in the uh, brain. So our initial thought was, should we be treating this patient with uh, potentially even chemotherapy and radiation because she was two and a half years out on entrectinib, doing well with now oligoprogression. And so give her uh, chemo radiation and then resume the entrectinib. Uh, and so we were, we were contemplating that, that approach. But in the meantime, we uh, subjected her to a bronchoscopy and a biopsy. And interestingly, that biopsy showed that she not only had the tumor, she, she did have evidence of adenocarcinoma, but the tumor biopsy, the NGS test done on the tumor showed uh, not only uh, the original ROS1 fusion, but also now a resistant mutation, S1986F. And it appears that lorlatinib is quite active against this uh, resistant mutation. And so we started the patient on lorlatinib, abandoned our thought process of doing chemotherapy and radiation. And now, literally just this week, uh, I saw her after a PET scan, after, after the patient was on, the, on lorlatinib for eight weeks, and uh, she has no activity detected on the PET scan. And so it was very gratifying to see that, that we identified the resistance mechanism and, and treated the patient with a drug that uh, was expected to be effective against that resistance mechanism. And so in general, that is the hope that we uh, try and re-biopsy. And this is where many times we do use ctDNA, but in this patient, the ctDNA was negative. Uh, there was no detectable ctDNA. And so uh, it was important to uh, biopsy uh, the tissue. Of course, there are many patients in whom a resistance mechanism may not be identified, uh, or there are uh, mutations such as uh, G2012R uh, that are solvent front mutations, rather, 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 I apologize, G2032R that are solvent front mutations that uh, lorlatinib is not uh, active against. In patients where there is no obvious um, of a resistance mechanism detected, generally lorlatinib's activity is quite limited. The response rate is lower at about 30 to 35%, and the median progression-free survival is also uh, limited. 
there are some novel drugs that are being tested uh, reputrectinib is is one of them that is active against the g22 2032r resistant mutation and has shown some of a, somewhat of a higher activity when that mutation is present as well as when a resistance mechanism has not been identified finally i will say there are patients particularly on crizotinib who uh, develop brain only progression and there are definitely there is definitely evidence that lorlatinib can be effective in those patients so to answer your question in a long winded way uh, yes i do use lorlatinib but i try to use the next drug based on uh, based on the resistance mechanism and if a resistance mechanism is not detected then i prefer to enroll the patient on some of the newer alk inhibitor trials and if that is not possible then i do try lorlatinib before proceeding with chemotherapy thank you suresh for sharing that clinical scenario because it's very important to put all this knowledge to practice right so lorenza along those lines do you routinely rebiopsy patients with ros1 positive lung cancer at the time of disease progression and how do you use that information so in general uh, in the context of uh, oncogene addicted nosmal cell lung cancer uh, i try to recommend a rebiopsy at the time of progression uh, uh, to to define the mechanisms uh, responsible for uh, acquired resistance uh, and i'm i am more confident with tissue biopsy uh, rather than a liquid biopsy especially in the case of rearrangement but unfortunately in the case of uh, ros1 uh, uh, patients uh, the situation is not so clear at least uh, in my in my clinical practice because uh, it's true i work uh, in a research uh, uh, institute so clearly a uh, new biopsy is recommended for all patients with uh, uh, oncogene addicted, so uh, even in patients, obviously, with ROS1 uh, mutations. But unfortunately, in the, uh, in the case of uh, uh, resistance to entractinib or to crizotinib, my only option is uh, uh, chemotherapy. So in other words, uh, or... or it's possible to offer to our patients uh, new agents, but in the context of clinical trials. But if I don't have uh, any trial to offer to this patient, I can prescribe only uh, platinum pemetrexate combination. So sure, uh, the information on, on the, the acquired resistant mechanism is uh, relevant, relevant especially to predict the aggressive behavior of the disease. But unfortunately, in my practice, I can use always the information of a new biopsy in my patients. This is a great segue to my next question. So this is to the two of you. Is there any role of immunotherapy and patients with ROS1 positive lung cancer? I will start with Suresh and then Lorenza, you can answer this as well. So uh, when we say immunotherapy, we really are talking about checkpoint inhibitors because those are the drugs that are available right now. And in general, um, 
in ALK and ROS1 patients, the role of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, in my opinion, is extremely limited. And uh, usually, I uh, don't use uh, checkpoint inhibitors, even uh, both as single agent or in combination with chemotherapy in uh, ROS1 uh, patients. So I don't think, I don't know if I can say that I will never consider it, but I don't think I have used it uh, for a long time in a ROS1 patient. Thank you. And you are correct. I was referring to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So Lorenza, do you use any immune checkpoint inhibitors in these patients? And is there any role for those agents for ROS1? No, I completely agree with Shiris. Also, in my opinion, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, has uh, no role at present for the management of ROS1-positive disease. Uh, Single-agent immunotherapy had only modest uh, activity, and we have uh, some, uh, some, some reports uh, uh, of uh, interesting response rate for the combination of chemo and immunotherapy, but I think that the benefit one was mainly related to the uh, chemo part of the regimen. So in other words, to the activity of platinum and pemetrix the combination. So in, uh, in the context of ROS1 disease, but also ALK and EGFR do not consider uh, immune checkpoint uh, inhibitors. I, just, I would just like to add one more point to what uh, Lorenza mentioned. Uh, there can be a temptation to use checkpoint inhibitors because in some of uh, uh, ROS1 as well as ALK patients, the PDL1 levels can be high. Uh, yeah. and, it, and it is important to recognize that that PDL1 expression in these tumors may not reflect the presence of T cells in the tumor microenvironment, which is what we are using the PDL1 expression as a surrogate marker for in, in generally in lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer patients. But that PDL1 expression could be a result of downstream signaling from the altered pathway, whether it's ROS1 or ALK. And so it's very critical to note that, um, especially in the newly diagnosed patients, sometimes the PDL1 result comes uh, first before the NGS result comes uh, is available, and that these patients can have a very high tumor PDL1, and there may be a temptation to use checkpoint inhibitors either alone or with chemotherapy, but that should not be that would not be the right strategy. Thank you so much. I have learned incredibly, like a large amount of information from the two of you. So my next question is, is there any exciting data coming down the pipeline for ROS1 that we should all be paying attention? I'm going to start with Lorenza and then I will follow with you, Sirish. Oh, yes. I think we are in a very, very exciting phase of this of the for ROS1 uh, inhibition. We have uh, uh, new data for uh, repotrectinib and uh, taletrectinib. Uh, they are two uh, novel ROS1 and TRAC uh, inhibitors. Both agents uh, show uh, the, a marked uh, activity in terms of response rate. Uh, 
in uh, patients with treatment naive, uh, but also in uh, uh, pretreated patients, and especially in those patients harboring the G2032R uh, mutation. So probably these two drugs uh, will enter soon in our algorithm. Another uh, interesting drug uh, is uh, NVL520. Uh, this drug uh, seems particularly interesting because uh, it, it, it is a, a very potent ROS1 inhibitor uh, with the market activity against uh, different uh, partner fusions, uh, different uh, um, resistant mutations, uh, but uh, it uh, uh, spares the track inhibition. So a market activity without CNF's uh, side effect. At present, we have uh, data only for uh, um, small number of patients, uh, I think no more than 20 patients uh, with pretreated dis pre disease. Uh, and uh, in such population, the drug uh, uh, had a very interesting uh, response rate uh, in uh, patients without brain metastasis, in, in patients with brain metastasis, and uh, in patients with secondary ROS1 mutation, or uh, in patients previously treated with repotrectinib or lorlatinib. So a very, very exciting results for uh, this uh, new drug. It is surprising how fast we're moving along cancer and, you know, we hope that these podcasts help people stay, you know, on top of that. So, Sirish, what is inciting? What makes you smile about some research in ROS1? Um, you know, what Lorenza mentioned, uh, you know, we have the privilege of participating in the Novalent trial, the uh, NVL520 trial, and that, you know, there was a recent publication in Cancer Discovery, uh, which Lorenza referred to um, about what the initial activity and uh, the drug uh, to date has been quite well tolerated, uh, doesn't have the track uh, uh, side effects. So, you know, no dizziness, no ataxia, no paresthesias, which is, which is very um, gratifying and helpful for the patients and, and has shown activity both against CNS metastases and the 2032R resistant mutations. So I think I think so. So new ROS1 inhibitors, uh, you know, are clearly exciting. The there is also uh, so many other drugs that are being looked at in non-small cell lung cancer. You know, antibody drug conjugates, uh, uh, cell therapy, and the hope is that uh, many of these uh, novel treatments will show uh, benefit in ROS1 patients because we know that even with newer TKIs. Eventually, we think that these patients' tumors are going to become resistant and we will need other options. So the hope is that as we are making advances in other areas of non-small cell lung cancer, that the benefits of those drugs will extend to patients with ROS1 altered non-small cell lung cancer. So I really think there are a lot of different options. And I think this is one group in particular, I think all patients, but one group in particular uh, that we really need to strive to enroll on clinical trials, particularly after they have progressed on frontline therapy. Thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. Thanks to the two of you for being so generous with your time. And of course, for all the work that you're both doing leading in the field. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Landy and Dr. Gagio. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it to join this, uh, this conversation. Uh, great opportunity to me. So thank you so much. Um, thank you, Najest. And I just want to say, I want to thank you and Stephen. I think this podcast is truly amazing. Uh, even for somebody who is focused on lung cancer, I cannot tell you how valuable uh, this podcast is. Um, and you bring on some uh, wonderful uh, guests and, and do it in a very, very uh, sort of a very um, uh, conversational fashion. Um, and so thank you for what you and Stephen are doing with this podcast. Oh my God, you just made my day. <laughs> I'm going to record this. I'm going to cut it and I'm going to put it as my ringtone to everyone. So thanks for that. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our website, islc.org, under Newsroom. We hope that you will tune in regularly uh, to give us a listen. Bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, and our Newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 